Welcome to Slate's I Have to Ask. I'm Isaac Chotner. My guest today is George Saunders, a fiction writer and essayist whose first novel, Lincoln and the Bardo, was released earlier this year. Saunders has spent many years writing fiction and teaching creative writing. Before that, he studied geophysical engineering in school and did work in oil exploration. But then Saunders, who is now 58, began crafting a number of short stories that came to be recognized for their unique power and striking language. As the New York Times wrote, the short story is where Saunders, the technically experimental wizard, and Saunders, the guy whose heart exists outside of his body, converge. It's science fiction of the highest order. The unreality has been rendered on the page in completely convincing and compelling detail, but it's also a story about domestic yearning and a story about oppression and injustice and the complicated ripple effects of global capitalism. This could be said of so much of his fiction, which examines American life with precision and scientific rigor, but also dark humor and horror. His new novel has some of these elements. It offers a supernatural take on Abraham Lincoln's struggles after the death of his son in 1862. Saunders also writes nonfiction, and last year he penned a surprisingly empathetic, deeply felt account of his experiences meeting Trump voters on the campaign trail. George Saunders, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. So I wanted to ask your, about your new book. Um, you, I, I read an old interview of yours, and you wrote that when you embark on a fictional project, you don't have a plan in mind. You kind of let the story take control. Um, yeah. And I'm wondering how different that is when you're writing about someone like Lincoln, who not only had an actual life that is well-documented, but who people have strong opinions on. Yeah, it was a little a little different, and I'll tell you exactly how. It was just that, um, you know, I, I sort of knew the, the core anecdote that I was going to be milking, which was that he had gone into uh, his son's crypt and somehow interacted with the body. Uh, so the main thing was uh, it th- that little incident almost implied an outline. Uh, and so I had, before I started, all I had was sort of two um, parallel stories. One was, okay, Lincoln comes into the crypt, he holds the body, and at some point he leaves. So that's you know, that's like the whole you know outline of the of one story. The other one is that meanwhile his son's spirit is there, isn't supposed to be, and at some point either leaves as he should or doesn't. So, so those th- that was you know the day before I started working those that was the complex <laughs> outline that I had going. So there was a little, but even that is more planning than I would usually have in a short story. So then, but in terms of like when you're just sitting down to write it, I mean, was that was that process different than it than it normally is? You know, it, I kept waiting for it to be different, but it really it kind of wasn't. I mean, apart from the fact that I had that little flimsy outline, which. If I'm working on a story, something like that will arise a couple months, a couple weeks into it, you know, some kind of conditional outline. But um, what I noticed was my writing process is always the same, even in nonfiction. And it's something like, uh, you know, you have some text at hand and you're concentrating on it by revising it and polishing it to taste. And as you do that, it kind of informs both what happened before and what's about to happen. So in a sense, you're kind of like, it's almost like you're walking through a field with a, you know, a light on your helmet. You you can kind of, you can see where you are and a little bit where you're going and a little where you've been. Uh, So for me, that's the small unit of composition. And no matter what I'm writing, I'm kind of just polishing what's right in front of me with waiting for it to give me a signal. How long did it take you to write a novel? Um, well, I think it took, f- uh, four and a half years of active writing. And then the idea had been swimming around for about 15 years before that. 
Wow. So, so when you say active writing, like what, 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 what's your day like? Uh, during this a day when you're working on the yeah, book. Yeah, this was a lucky thing because I had the, um, I, I had, you know, I wrote it, started it before the last book came out, had a little interruption, and then came back to it. So, it was kind of you know a number of really, really quiet, uninterrupted periods, uh, punctuated by wild activity. So in those periods, I just would. Uh, most of it was upstate New York where, where I live and we just, you know, get up in the morning, go out to the shed and uh, just kind of fart around for about eight hours. And with this book, it was kind of good because there were some times where you're actually writing new text or revising and you have to be sharp. And then also a whole bunch of research time uh, where you didn't have to be quite so sharp. So you could do that at night. There was also I did a lot of kind of um, kind of wandering around with structural units in my head, like should A come before B? If I do A, B, then I have a choice of C or D. You know, that that kind of thinking uh, doesn't take quite as much uh, acuity, so you could also do that in the after hours. But it was kind of, when I was working on it, it was kind of wonderful because I would get um, uh, sometimes 12, 15-hour days when I could just do nothing but think about the book. And during that time, you're actually thinking about the book most of the time. Yeah, and in fact, the problem is I have trouble thinking about anything else. It's just so, uh, this book in particular was so interesting. But but most of that thought, to be honest, it's not so much like, you know, what kind of president was Lincoln or what was his trajectory. It's more, um, you know, like you're in a section and you don't know how to move to the next one. Or you can see that there's two, in terms of the real action of the story, there's two consecutive beats. But so far, you're not seeing a graceful way to make one cause the other, Uh even down to the level of you've got five speeches, you like all five of them, but you can see that there's a number of different orders in which you could present them. So it, I, I think of it as being more technical or, or you know, you concentrate your energy on the technical thing at hand, which can be very mundane. But as you're doing that, the bigger stuff is happening kind of behind you. It's like, a, you know, like these little delicate forest creatures, forest creatures are coming out of the woods. Uh, and as long as you keep your eyes on the technical stuff, they'll keep coming and they'll keep informing it. I hope you spent 12 to 15 hours preparing for this podcast. I'd always um, do. Yeah. Uh, well, I was going to ask, I mean, how, um, when you, when you read about Lincoln for your research, which I, you know, I, I, I know you did. And, and also just the process of writing about him, did your opinion of him change in any way from either of those experiences? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, I, I guess it just got more, uh, detailed. I, I always kind of, you know, in general thought he was, I liked him and I, I found his, uh, you know, his his trajectory kind of heroic. But then when you start to get into the details, it's he's kind of a weird, amazing dude. Like he, um, you know, went in, in his lifetime from a, of a sort of a pretty intelligent, real, real country dude, you know, real country, uh, kind of very much just one of the people. And then over the years of his life, he got sharper and sharper. And then uh, I think those last five years, something really unusual happened. I think that's why we love him so much, because... Uh, you know, his life kind of, especially those last five years, they, it kind of parallels Jesus's life in that somebody is suddenly in the, you know, sort of, you might say the national spotlight with an incredibly high stakes thing going on. And under that pressure, instead of wilting or, or chickening out, the person actually expands. So by the end of his life, I think Lincoln was kind of an extraordinary uh, spiritual being in, in the sense that he understood that he was only a tiny part of this thing that was going on. And that the best way he could serve the thing that was going on was by being almost invisible. Uh, and, you know, 
trying in every situation to ensure a positive outcome, whether it reflected well on him or not. And then in the end, you know, that crazy detail that he, you know, he was basically crucified on Good Friday, you know, shot uh, on Good Friday, uh, right as the war ended. It's just almost, you almost couldn't make it up. I don't want this to sound like meet the press, but I I read (laughs) an old quote of yours and I just want to read it back to you. Um, or part of it, where you say, if there are 10 readers out there, let's assume I'm never going to reach two of them. They'll never be interested. And let's say I've already got three of them, maybe four. If there's something in my work that's making number five, six, and seven turn it off, I'd like to figure out what that is. And this sort of fits in with other things I've read about how you view your work as trying to show compassion and reaching through to people. And um, I, I was wondering... You know, I, I wanted to ask you, basically, you wrote a long piece for The New Yorker about Trump supporters and uh, you went to some Trump rallies and you talked to them. And it seemed to me from reading your piece that the way you wanted to interact with this thing that was going on, which was the Trump campaign, and now we're living under the Trump presidency, is you wanted to sort of show compassion and reach through to these people who thought differently from you. So I, I noticed a similarity there. Does that seem fair? or Do you think that's off? No, that's exactly right. I think that's that's very uh, observant. I, my my thing is that I I feel like just personally, uh, I can I feel comfortable doing that. You know, in other words, with these the Trump people, I I felt like I could hang in for a long time with them, trying to understand it from their point of view, trying to put myself in their shoes, without losing clarity. You know, and in fact, for me, it helps me uh, consolidate my view if I spend a lot of time in the opposing camp. Uh, hearing the best the best version of their argument, and then at some point I kind of pull back and go, okay, so that's the that's how they see it. Uh, so maybe they're not as easily dismissible as I thought, and yet I also see a lot of uh, bad things about their stance. So it, to me, the whole thing is is about trying to make your argument as complex as possible and as kind of um, intelligent as possible, which means letting the uh, the data come in without a whole lot of prejudgment, you know, that I think that's, I, I think that's just more powerful no matter how you cut it. I mean, all of us these days feel the urge to just get angry and kind of turn off the, the uh, microphone in a certain sense. And I just don't, f- uh, you know, as a fiction writer, I don't find that as interesting as. Do you feel it though? Mo- do you feel angry? I mean, do you, is that oh, an yeah. impulse that you have? Oh, for sure. I feel disgusted. I mean, it's terrifying, Yeah, you know, that, but, but I, th- you know, so my thing is if you, uh, you know, if you were under attack, you would want to do whatever was the most efficient and the most powerful. Uh, in this particular historical moment, I don't think we're at the point where, you know, we have to switch off all our empathetic functions and just start fighting. I think actually the, the, the fight has to be conducted with the empathy, you know, thing turned on all the way, especially because, you know, it's sort of like when I was in the field with the Trump people, they they were friendly they were uh, they were sort of enthusiastic about him in a real straightforward way that didn't make sense to me but you could see that they weren't bad people and they weren't faking it so then uh, then again the novelistic impulse is okay i didn't know my country as well as i thought i did there's some percentage of people who really see him in a positive way that i actually can't imagine so is the novelistic stance to go they're all wrong turn off the system or is it say, all right, maybe my uh, antenna aren't as good as I thought they were. And again, I think a lot of people resist that step because they think it's, you know, conceding or even enabling the opposition. But I just personally feel um, that I can go into that for quite a long time without getting turned. 
and and that when I go to try to persuade that person or even fight them, I'm going to be better served by understanding them more completely than understanding them only partially. I, I guess, yeah, I guess, you know, the, the way in which maybe we disagree about this, but the way in which I think that I differed with the way you approached that piece was that you sort of presented America as being in these two different bubbles, which I think we agree are true, or you conceived of them as two separate bubbles. Yeah. But um, I guess maybe it seemed like you wanted to paint a certain equivalence, not in outcomes, but just in the way these two different bubbles live in their own, or this is, I'm, I'm being repetitive, but the, the way yeah. that everyone sort of lives in their own world and their different realities. But I, I guess the question would be like, are those, do, do, does one of those worlds have much more of a, an actual connection to reality? You no, know, I totally agree with you. I totally agree with you. And in in that piece, one of the challenges was to, um, I mean, here's what I think is that the the right wing bubble is uh, much less factual, much less logical, much more fearful. It's it's um, and also I think it would be un, it would be true to say that the people in the right wing bubble are much less interested in the people in the left wing bubble than vice versa. In in that particular piece, you 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 know you're kind of as you always are. You're constrained by length, and you're constrained by rhetorical position. So what I, what I thought on that piece was I'm going to try to um, almost not, not take on the false equivalence idea in favor of uh, doing something Lincoln would do, which is to say, let me take on my opponent's argument at, at its highest form. So in other words, I, 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 I think we're in agreement that it's not correct to say that the bubbles are equal. Uh, it's not correct to equate, say, MSNBC and Fox. There's that's that's facile, but for for various reasons, that particular piece, I felt like strategically it was going to be more powerful. And now I was naive to think it was going to be persuasive, but I thought it was going to be more persuasive if I didn't pick up that particular thread at that particular time. If that makes sense. No, no, that does. I mean, I, I guess I was wondering if um, Trump's now been president for several months. I was wondering if anything about him or his appeal has is is that changed in your mind seeing him actually in power now? You mean if I if I find him more appealing? No, I meant the, the sort of um have you thought differently about what his appeal is to different people um or sort of has your opinion of why he succeeded politically changed at all? I think I think you know what's becoming clear is that he took a lot of people to the cleaners. You know the the idea that he was a, the working man's defender is becoming it's becoming clear that that's not going to be the case. Uh, I think also it's becoming clear that he he's just a loose cannon. There's not any uh, particular philosophy or consistency behind what he's doing, and I think that. Some of the people I met like that, but I'm getting, I'm guessing that by now that it's starting to wear down a little bit. Um, I, you know, I don't think, I, I guess the thing that, that I'm still interested in is, is that so many people could see him as a positive choice. And he, I mean, enthusiastically see him as a, as a sort of savior figure. And that just does not, that, you know, that light just did not light up for me at all. Uh, but again, you know, to me, what's interesting is my own misunderstanding of the situation. If if you've got some, let's say 40% of the people who voted thought he was a really good choice, I just don't get our country. And, I, and it, you know, it's on me, I think, like if, you Why know, I've been you? saying if, because I'm a writer and my, my, I'm supposed to be an American writer who understands the, 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 you know, I mean, to make a beautiful picture of a, the country, I have to really understand it from the inside out. I'm not saying it's on me in a, in a sense that I'm deficient, you know, or that their beliefs are correct and I have to 
you know, I, but but it's like if your dog bites you in the balls, then that surprises you. <laughs> you know, it's on the dog, but it's also on you for not knowing your dog. You've left me speechless with that uh, <laughs> with that uh, comparison. Um, well, let me ask you uh, about understanding the country. I mean, you've written a lot about sort of consumer consumerism and mass media and in your short stories, I'm talking about going back a long way. And I was wondering just to just keep on Trump for one more second. I was wondering what you made of that aspect of his rise, because um, in that sense, it does seem you were prescient about the way in which consumerism and mass media sort of play on people's minds is sort of themes that have been in your work for a long time. And it does seem like we have a really frightening example of the way these things work with the unbelievable rise of Trump. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, I mean, yes. And, uh, the, I mean, th- this, that piece was hard for me because, uh, you know, I'm from a kind of a working class background and I think a lot of the stories were also, uh, you know, I saw them as being sympathetic to people who, you know, we're, we're, uh, getting shit on by capitalism, basically, you know, the, over the last 20 years, the money's gone up, uh, corporatism has gotten so powerful. There's been this rising ethic of materialism. And so a lot of the people that I, you know, worked with when I was in my twenties, they, they really did, you know, get left behind and get beat up. And that was when I put it in my stories, I saw it as a manifestation of progressive ideology, you know, that this, uh, that the, uh, the corporate behemoth was, was, uh, you know, didn't care about the middle and lower middle class. So the saddest thing for me was that I, I was right about that and maybe underestimated the hurt and the energy uh, in that group of people. And then along comes Trump to kind of misappropriate all that stuff and, and ride that rage to the top. And then I think he's going to cut loose of that whole, I mean, there's, he's not going to help anybody in that way. And so, um, yeah, it's, yeah, you know, I, just, it's I, I just meant in terms of his role as a media figure also before he became a political figure and right. the way he sort of harnessed mass media and the television show. And I, I just thought you might have something to say about that aspect of it, given your previous work. Well, I mean, I, I don't, you know, I, I th- the one thing I'll say is that it's an, it's an amazing thing to be in the middle of what I think is a technological media revolution where these these new tools that are charming and lovely and we're addicted to them uh somehow he has an amazing uh instinct for how to use those and and especially in in terms of just you know running over the whole idea of truth you know that you can you can you know you say a lie you speak a lie and it it just starts to live and it and uh so i think it's very interesting and moving right now is the way that that same set of tools and you know the um journalists and and uh online journalists are are now in a life and death battle with him and his pals over truth you know and i think actually i think we're starting to win i think i think the um uh you know the the uh that initial burst of energy where you could say you know there's a rhinoceros in my pocket and you keep saying it and you get kellyanne conway to say it uh and then to also to be offended that anybody would doubt it and all that whole thing that's wearing thin, I think. And so anyway, that's what I'm I'm kind of watching that to oh, see if, yeah. you know. Well, hopefully yeah. there will not be like nuclear war by the time this podcast airs and your prediction will hope. have proven, proven true. You've written a lot about, you, know, you just talked about the technological revolution. What is, and which is, technology is something you've written a lot about. What is your relationship now to technology? I mean, are you, are you wired in all the time? Yeah. I mean, you know, the other thing I should say is I, I, um, you know, <laughs> Basically, I'm a, a, you know, a fiction writer, so I don't, 
my main stance is to try to not to have a stance, except in the particular story at the particular moment. You know, that that's the purest version of me. Uh, when I start having opinions, I've got a, a fairly, you know, average take on everything, I think. I don't. I actually don't feel like I'm very interesting unless I'm making up a story, So that, which is why I gravitated to that. So I don't, so yeah, I'm kind of like... Feel free to make things up here then. Just go yeah, for it. No, but I mean, I mean, consi- you know, like I, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I'm, I got a phone. I, I like it. Uh, I probably am on it too much, but I don't really have any big, you know, million dollar ideas about technology. I, what I, th- I think part of the, there's a beautiful quote, I think it's at the beginning of a Tom McGuane book, but it's something, I, I always botch it, but it's like, you know, man is mirac- miraculously well-made and enthusiastically lives the life that is being lived. So I kind of feel like since my main job on this earth is to write stories, then I want to be kind of in the middle of everything in a kind of average way. You know, like I, I, I just like this sort of blend, uh, look around, sometimes get above my station, sometimes below it, uh, use the technology in different ways so that I'm getting the widest swath of data that I can when the magic moment comes when I get to actually make something up. Speaking of those, I want to ask you before I let you go about those stories, which is that um, there's been a lot written about how the sort of short story form is endangered. Um, They don't appear, you know, doesn't appear in men's magazines as often as it used to. And there seems like short story collections are coming out less frequently. Is that something you feel? And what what do you make of it sort of seemingly declining relevance in the culture and also just even the, the world of fictional mass fictional culture? Yeah, I think I've, you know, actually I feel the opposite. And I'm not sure this is a good thing, but because of the MFA culture, uh, so many young writers are thinking in the form of short stories. And uh, it's unfortunate that there's not the, you know, the money that there used to be. I mean, when Hemingway's Day, you could make a full time in Fitzgerald, you can make a living as a short story writer. So that part of it is too bad. Uh, but, but I think some of the slack is getting picked up by, you know, MFA culture. So I don't, I don't really see it as... Um, I don't think there's really a decline. And when I go out and do readings and stuff, there are a lot of people who really seem to be kind of aficionados of the form. So I'm not really too discouraged. You know, I, I think it's okay. I, I'm not, you know, again, this is one of the things where anecdotally, I feel like the short story is in kind of a renaissance. Uh, but but the problem, you know, the bigger problem is the culture has a kind of a disdain for art. And... Uh, and especially some of these forms of art that take a long time to do, th- that's a that's a problem, you know. And I think w- with the rise of the Trump movement and the sort of anti-truth, uh, you know, gossip-based movement, I, I haven't quite made this connection, you know, in print yet. But I think there's something about our disdain for art that leads directly to the rise of a Trumpian-like uh, thing, where you know all the things we do in art, which is abide with somebody imaginatively and try to find nuance and try to actually stir up some empathy, even for people with whom we disagree. Uh, You know, the willingness to not give up on a person to kind of try to look behind the scenes and see why someone might be angry or hateful. All those impulses that I think reading and writing literature, you know, helps us with, those are kind of embodied in their opposites in the Trump movement, which is to name call, dismiss, you know, uh, categorize entire groups of people and then sort of demonize them and and to uh, reach a lot of conclusions about people like Muslims and immigrants and so on that you haven't actually spent much time with in person. Though, to me, those are all anti-literary uh, uh, impulses. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There's an Orwell quote, which I don't remember exactly about how when you read a great book, you know it wasn't written by someone in the KKK, essentially. Um <laughs> 
But, you know, I, I go back and forth because there's also, you know, Ezra Pound or whoever you want to, um, whatever, there are historical figures that were, you know, had disgusting politics. Uh, you yes. can go through the list, Dickens, uh, or were nasty people or, you know, whatever it was who managed to produce incredible art. Um, maybe Dickens is a good example of someone with both nasty politics and seemingly not a very nice person. And so, I, I mean, I don't know what you make of that, but it's it's interesting because I it, what you're saying, there is some intuitively it seems right, but it, there also are exceptions and people are complex. Yeah, it's not, it's not to say that only good people could do art, but it would be that anybody who does art gets a little better, maybe. You know, I'm not, I'm not even sure of that. I think, you know, for me, at the end of the day, the um, the reason I love being an artist is that you can kind of leave the conceptual behind and the analytical behind even. And, you know, you're you're kind of uh, living a story a second at a time. The other notion that I think is interesting is that a, a person uh, like, you know, any of the people you've mentioned, Ezra Pound, say, you know, unfortunately, we're not, we're not, um, we actually contain multitudes. So the Ezra Pound that can write a beautiful poem, uh, I would say, exists side by side with the nasty fascist Ezra Pound. And they tag team a little bit in a way that, you know, you can't deny that some of the poems are beautiful. You can't deny that his politics were disgusting. So given that those things exist, we, we maybe have to think, you know, in a more complicated ambiguous way about what a human being actually is. It would be nice if, you know, only the best people, the best people made themselves better and from that exalted position farted out a, a great work of art. But I think it's actually more more complicated than that. No, I've been, I've been, I'm working on a book right now about Evelyn Waugh and it's clear that um, he was a very nasty person and it's also clear that that nastiness uh, helped fuel the sense of humor in his books that really makes for great art. Yeah, or maybe there's a moment where the nasty person you know, emits a nasty thing out of his nastiness. And then the artistic person, you know, that co-dwells with him steps out and makes an adjustment so that suddenly the, you know, the nastiness is uh, been tempered by the demands of the art. I, I can give you kind of a counterexample that Chekhov, uh, who is not a nasty person, uh, but in the story Gooseberries, he has a, he makes this beautiful speech about basically about the sort of... Uh, the possible immorality of happiness, the way that happy people are actually tend to be kind of oppressive. And it's a beautiful speech. I mean, it's like you read it and you go, that is so true, you know. But then Chekhov attributes the speech to a kind of a, a thoughtless guy, like kind of a blowhard. So in that way, you know, the artist comes out and just uh, artistically adjusts the thing to make it more complicated and interesting. So I think that's what actually happens with these these questionable people is they... They're, uh, you know, like, like Flannery O'Connor, I think was actually a fine, wonderful person. But, you know, she's pretty acerbic in her, the way she uh, creates these characters. She, so she put on the hat that says, Southern people get on my nerves. She makes some text in which a Southern person gets on your nerves. Then she steps back and she puts on another hat of the true artist and says, okay, now I have an example here of a Southern, of somebody venting. Uh, how can I use that in a bigger fabric to make a, something truly universally beautiful? So, so I like this idea of tag team. We've got so many different people in us, and they flicker on and off in a, in a second's notice. Maybe you could see an artist as the person who is somewhat in touch with those various people and knows how to call them forth to get the uh, the best result. If only Maybe. Trump had written his own books, we might not be in this, this situation. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. Um just before I let you go, um, I just want to just briefly 
just talk about the role of humor in your fiction. And I was just wondering, um, you try to, it feels like, very consciously insert humor into serious fiction. And I was wondering whether that is a particular challenge and you ever worry that one will sort of overwhelm the other and, and how you think about that concept. Yeah, I think you're always, I mean, you're, it, this maybe ties into what we just were talking about. You're always aware that you have two or three gifts, you know, or, or kind of uh, th- things you can offer. And you're always um, using those in combination. And that's exactly right. As you're, You'll sometimes see, oh, my God, I'm being way too funny here. I'm relying on humor too much. Then in revision, you just adjust the mix, you know, um, that I mean, that's kind of I think any writer, whether they're funny or not, they have two or three, some number of go to things. Uh, and in a sense, just like it is the case in personality, you know, when you're having a conversation with somebody, you, you're you going to sort of bring those things to the table in various mixes to try to keep the energy of, of the conversation up. And for me, the humor isn't really um I think sometimes people think of humor as this kind of thing that you inject or that you artificially introduce. Uh, to me, it's all tied together. You know, like when I think about what, what life actually feels like and looks like, uh, I think even humor versus serious is kind of an artificial distinction that in a natural moment of living, we don't we don't think of it that way. Um, you know, in other words, you could, you could uh, pass wind at a funeral, you know, would that be funny or tragic? Well, you know, it's it's both. So I think I think to me, it's not really a distinction that I make. Uh, what I'm trying to when I'm writing, one thing I'm really trying to do is to be honest to the fictive moment that I just happen to have made. So sometimes humor is just that you've made an inadvertently charged situation, and then you notice it and you go, oh, and then you let you know you you complete the move and it's funny. It's funny because the the reader was sharing your tension, the tension of that temporary falseness that you then punctured by writing the next line. So for me, you know, again, I, I, I'm going to sort of apologetically say I don't really have as many notions as I probably should. But to me, the whole thing is subsumed in trying to keep writing stories that are good. Uh, and actually, to be honest, a lot of that process is helped along by not thinking too much outside of the the moment of actually doing it. So the the question of humor in fiction is one that I get asked, but it's to me it's almost academic. I I would almost rather not know because then the next time I'm in a position to do some humor, I might be too concept heavy to actually pull it off. You um you said earlier just briefly that um you try to sort of you're you're a writer and so you try to sort of live an average life and be in the middle or something. Not politically, but that and so I was just wondering, I mean what what your life is like these days? Are you still living in upstate New York? What are you spending your time doing? Yeah, we're we're kind of. Sp- I, I still teach at Syracuse half the year, and then we got a place out in California. We're kind of there. So so the life is getting less less typical in in some ways, but um, yeah, I I think it's you know pretty much the same. I mean, I'm just trying to find some writing time, and then if I can do it, I'm you know working in the house most of the day, and then uh, you know just going out in the afternoon to try to see what's going on. So it's pretty it's pretty. Uh, much what it always was with occasionally really, you know, nice opportunities to meet people or to like, I just came off a big tour for the, for the Lincoln book. Uh, and that was certainly not, you know, average, but I think maybe more than average now, what I'm trying to do is cover, you know, like, um, it feels to me like 
it's it's good practice to cover all the bases in terms of high and low. So like a few years ago, I went and lived in a homeless camp in Fresno. That was really educational. I learned a, I learned a lot that I'm still processing. Uh, and then every so often, you know, I, I went on another story where I traveled with Bill Clinton to Africa. That was a whole different kind of, you know, thing. So I think part of my, my charge for myself is to, is to try to... Um, both geographically in terms of class, in terms of experience, just get as much into my head as I can. And again, so that at the moment that you're inventing something, you're not full of shit, you know, that you've, you have enough, hopefully contradictory data to kind of supercharge your invention with, um, I, I would say with humility, like, you, you know, you go to invent a moment, you know enough uh, that you don't go on autopilot, I guess I would say. You know, absolutely. Um, George Saunders, the book is Lincoln and the Bardo. And thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It was such a pleasure. Isaac. Thank you very, very much. Take care. Thank you. And that's our show for today. I Have to Ask is produced by Audrey Dilling. Our theme music was composed by Doug Chase. To make sure you never miss an episode of I Have to Ask, please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And also take a few moments to rate and review the show. I'd love to hear from you as well. If you have an idea for a guest or just want to let me know your thoughts, just email me at ask at slate.com. That's ask at slate.com.